welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I have an abstract from the ASH annual meeting that teaches you so many things about how to interpret medical evidence. You won't want to miss this one. And I am joined via Skype by Dr. Sherry Aspinall, who is a researcher at the Veterans Administration and the author of a new paper that looks at the real-world utilization of anti-cancer drugs for renal cancer. You won't want to miss this discussion. It'll teach you a lot about the proper way to use real-world data. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Well, it's in the spirit of the holiday season that the internet keeps on giving. This is an abstract that appeared in the ASH annual meeting that's been highlighted in the top 10 AML abstracts in the ASCO post. And thus it caught my eye and I felt compelled to discuss it. It's entitled, Time from Diagnosis to Treatment Does Not Affect Outcome in Intensively Treated Patients with Newly Diagnosed AML. And it was an oral presentation Saturday, December 7th. And listen to that title. The title pretty much tells you everything you need to know. The time from diagnosis to treatment does not affect the outcome in intensively treated patients with newly diagnosed AML. Wow. With a title like that, do we even need the whole abstract? We can just skip it. You already know everything you need to know. Well, I fear, unfortunately, that's how some people do interpret abstracts. But here on Plenary Session, we're going to take as deep a dive as possible with the available data. Well, I read this abstract, and I saw that it was cited in someone's top 10, and I thought to myself, oh boy, that is so, so bad. This is a bad abstract, it's bad research, it's leading to a bad conclusion, and it is a shame that um, so many people will uncritically accept it. And so I wanted to set the record straight on this podcast. Let me start by reading you the last line of the abstract, which pretty much tells you everything the authors want you to know. Quote, It may be a safe and reasonable approach to wait for genetic and other laboratory test results in order to assign clinically stable patients to the best available treatment option before the start of intensive treatment. In other words, it's perfectly fine to wait for genomic results. Well, what do you need to know to fully understand this abstract? Well, you need to know a little bit of background about AML. In recent years, with AML induction, there is a tremendous financial and professional pressure to drag your heels. And that's because there's a number of clinical trials, mostly uncontrolled clinical trials, where there is an enrollment period of time where some genomic and or functional information needs to be reported before you can enroll the patient. So you need to take somebody who presented with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, and you need to wait maybe seven days, maybe 10 days, till you get the results back from testing that will tell you whether or not this patient is trial eligible. And if they're trial eligible, what arm of the trial are they going to go on? Are they going to go on the standard of care arm? Are they going to go on the arm that's designed for someone with alphabet soup mutation? You name the mutation, there's an arm for that. A novel drug from AstraZeneca, a novel drug from Eli Lilly, arm A, arm B, arm C, et cetera, et cetera. You might have to wait a while. Well, um, in the modern world, That's a little bit difficult to do because obviously this modern paradigm of waiting to treat somebody with AML, it runs against a powerful teaching, a deep and powerful teaching that we all were taught, which is you don't want to sit around when you have acute leukemia. You don't want to put somebody on a hydroxyurea, three grams TID, and just keep waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for two weeks, maybe having to dose reduce your hydroxyurea because you're poisoning the counts while you wait, uh, simply for some information that may or may not change therapy. 
You don't want to do that because there's a downside to doing that, which is you might have some people who don't do so well while they wait. And that is the real concern. So if your goal were to encourage people to be comfortable waiting and you want to fight the powerful professional teaching that many people grew up with that you shouldn't wait too long, it must take a concerted effort to change people's minds. And maybe, just maybe, a totally flawed study will do it. So enter this study. Here's what the authors did. They took 2,200 patients with AML who started induction therapy, and they asked the question if, retrospectively, delay was associated with worse outcome. So they grouped the patients into a few categories, people who started between zero and five days of diagnosis, people who started between six and 10 days, people who started between 11 and 15 days, and people who started therapy more than 15 days out. That's a long time to wait for somebody with AML. Over two weeks, you're waiting, and you have not yet begun induction therapy, and they are an induction therapy candidate. That's a tall proposition. So here's what they find. After a median follow-up of 40 months, the two-year OS of all patients was 51%. The unadjusted two-year OS rates stratified by time from diagnosis to treatment for each day of treatment delay was 1.00, p-value 0.32. In multivariable Cox regression analysis, the hazard ratio for time to treatment delay as a continuous variable was 1.00. When OS was analyzed separately, stratified for age less than 60 or age greater than 60, and for high versus low initial white blood count, defined by threshold of 50K, no significant differences between time to treatment delay were observed. Well, that should reassure you, hazard ratio one, that waiting around has nothing to do with mortality. There you go. Ergo, it may be a safe and reasonable approach to wait for genetic and other laboratory test results to assign clinically stable patients the best available therapy option before the start of intensive treatment. Well, well, well. That is super simple, is it not? Super simple. We looked at people who got intensive treatment and those who had a delay versus those who did not have a delay. They all did about the same, and delay had nothing to do with how well you did. Therefore, you can wait as long as it takes to get whatever complicated genomic and or functional screen you need to enroll a patient on an uncontrolled clinical trial that is sponsored by your favorite pharmaceutical company that has high overhead spending in your institution, as God intended. It is A-OK. Well, it sounds persuasive, and in fact, I'm sure it'll persuade many, many people who don't understand simple retrospective observational epidemiology, but it has a deep flaw, which is what I'm going to explain to you here on this podcast. Let me see if I can show you the flaw um, just by emphasizing the right words. So let me repeat what they did. We looked at 2,200 AML patients who started induction. Let me repeat that. We looked at 2,200 patients who started induction, put another way, conditioned on getting induction. Among those who started induction, we asked if a delay prior to induction was associated with worse outcomes. Again, among those who started induction. Among those who were able to be induced, we asked if the delay prior to induction was associated with worse outcomes among those who made it to induction. In other words, We are asking whether or not time to treatment delay affects outcomes, and we're conditioning on getting the treatment induction. And we saw that after we had introduced this selection bias, after we had conditioned on a collider in the study, we ignored that because we A, don't understand what we're doing, or B, we're willfully filling the world with bad data to justify our preconceived commercial interests. It's one of the two, maybe a little bit of both, but those are the only two explanations. So... Um, This is wrong. This is always wrong. They are asking if time to delay affects outcomes, but they're conditioning on the receipt of therapy. That's very, very flawed. Let me explain to you um, in simple terms why that's flawed. Okay, let's make it simple. What What is the question they're asking, the causal question? They're asking, if you have a patient in your clinic, is it better to just go ahead and treat them right away with 7 plus 3 induction chemotherapy, or is it okay to wait for some people for as long as maybe 15 days until you get test results back um, and, and then go from there, from treating them. Okay, so imagine you did an RCT. In one arm, it's the standard of care today. Sorry, well, it's the standard of care maybe five to seven years ago when we were actually following the, the correct ways. Um, in that arm, here's what you do. You get all the people with newly diagnosed AML and you're randomized to start treatment within three days. And it turns out 95% of people in that arm meet the target. 95% are able to start treatment in three days. 
and maybe 5% of people you intended to start in three days, but there was a hiccup and you got, they got it probably between three and seven days out. So a median time to treatment initiation of three days, which is more or less what they find in their retrospective study. Okay. Now, what do you do in your interventional arm? Well, your interventional arm is testing the hypothesis that it's safe to wait. So in that arm, let's say we give everyone a functional genomic screen, a functional um, cellular screen or perhaps a genomic test, and we wait 10 to 15 days out. Well, while we're waiting, we might find that 10% of people, they die while waiting. Okay, maybe 5% of people who you initially thought were eligible for induction chemotherapy, they start to look not so good, and you start to see their true age. Maybe they're 76, 77. Maybe they're looking a little too old for induction. You think, mm, maybe azacitidine is right for you. Maybe 5% of people actually think more about the diagnosis and say, you know, I want to go on comfort care. And maybe 80% of people ultimately start therapy 10 to 15 days later. So would it make sense to compare the 80% of people who got therapy in arm B against the 95% of people who got therapy in arm A? No, obviously not. That would be a per-protocol analysis. It's not an intention-to-treat analysis. But that is essentially what they're doing in the retrospective abstract. They're conditioning on receipt of therapy. So if there was 20% attrition in the group of people in whom you intended to start treatment 10 to 15 days later, but for whom you could not get there because biology is difficult and things got worse and you were unable to get there, they're excluded from that arm altogether. Let me give you another analogy why this is wrong. This is called conditioning on a collider, a collider stratification bias. Another analogy why that's wrong. Let's say we want to summit Mount Everest. And if you're interested in this, you should read Into Thin Air by Krakauer. Splendid book, splendid book. Or you can watch the movie Everest, which is a pretty good book. Bit of a tearjerker. Um, and let's say you want to scale Mount Everest. Well, of course, you should know that to scale Mount Everest, it's not so easy. You got to go there, got to acclimatize. And then when you finally make your push, you got to go through a series of camps. You got to go from base camp to camp one, camp one to camp two, camp two to camp three, camp three to camp four. Camp four is a key camp. Camp four is where you can make your final push to summit. Of course, I'm following the, the simple way you can get a Nepali Sherpa to carry up the mountain. I'm not talking about the, 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 the more difficult ways to summit the mountain. I'm talking about the simple, $100,000 in my pocket, ergo, I can climb Mount Everest kind of way of climbing Mount Everest. Okay, you're on Camp 4. You want to make your bid for Summit. Well, it turns out the best time to go for Summit is you need a clear evening, and around midnight, 1 a.m., you got to make your push for Summit. Your hope is to reach Summit by about noon or 2 p.m. at the latest, and then you got to turn around and try to get back to base camp before sundown because it's a lot harder to find where you're going in the dark uh, when you're going down. So that's the real goal of climbing Everest. The best time to go is midnight. Let's say you wanted to ask the question of, you know, is it okay to delay making that final summit push. So in one group, let's say you're doing a comparison, one group, they get to go for it right at midnight. In the other group, they have to delay 12 hours. They're not allowed to leave Camp 4 until noon. They have to wait 12 hours. There's a delay. And you want to ask, well, is having a delay associated with worse outcomes? Let's say in those 12 hours while they're waiting, 30% of the people who have been delayed, they decide I'm too cold. I have altitude sickness, I'm having blurry vision, I'm feeling nauseous and vomiting, I have to go down. And so they go back to base camp. And so you're left with 70%. And that 70% do go for the summit, and it turns out they succeed at reaching the summit at the exact same rate as the 100% of people who didn't have a delay. Do you then conclude it's okay to delay? Well, if you're only looking at the people who went for it, who were able to make the push for summit, it looks the same, but you're excluding people who didn't make it there in whom you had intended that they go there. You're conditioning on the moving towards the summit after introducing a delay. You're conditioning on a collider. That is a problem with retrospective studies. You don't see all the people who turned around and headed back to base camp. You only see the people who went to summit, and those are unlikely to be at random events, those are likely to be the people for whom the biology of AML is not exploding. It's not rip-roaring. They're people who can tolerate the altitude for 12 hours while sitting aimlessly at base camp four, which is just under 8,000 meters. That is a ridiculous group of people. They're very fit people. They're not comparable to the group of people that all got to go right at the start at midnight. You see, that's what they're doing in this retrospective study. It's classic collider stratification bias. There is also, for EpiPro, some guarantee time bias here, which is actually the amount of days before which you receive induction therapy. Of course, that's guarantee time. But of course, I think that pays a more minor contribution because it's offset by just massive, massive selection bias. Anyway, that's, uh, that's a pro tip we don't need to get into. It's a bit trivial. 
Okay, I'm not sure if the authors really appreciate that this is a deep flaw of their paper, that they are including people based on their ability to receive induction therapy, and thus they're maybe omitting people who didn't make it there and people in whom there were delay. Um, the closest they ever come to where it's talking about this is one throwaway line in the abstract that says, quote, despite multivariate analysis, a bias towards longer time to treatment initiation intervals in patients judged to be clinically stable by the treating physician cannot be excluded entirely. Uh, by cannot be excluded entirely, what they mean to say is is probably very, very, very likely. And that's probably why we didn't find any difference at all, even if this were perhaps something that's super important and that's been taught since the dawn of time. We might not have seen a difference because it's probably the patients in whom the doctor was most comfortable watching that were the ones who were watched. Ergo, they probably weren't the patients in whom the doctor felt like, whoa, I got to start treatment right away. That's probably not the same group of people. So that's probably a huge, big problem for your study. Such a big problem that your study is really, I mean, completely useless. I mean, it's just a totally useless study the way you've analyzed it. It tells me really nothing. Um, so what's the real takeaway point? The real takeaway point is for all those other studies that you're doing where you've inserted this and you don't have a control arm, you really do need randomization. You need to randomize patients to what doctors would do in 2019, which is initiate induction therapy in most people, even while we wait for further cytogenetic information to know risk stratification, um, even while we wait perhaps for a FLT3 ITD even without knowing whether or not you're MPO one mutant, and certainly without knowing your functional assays to a number of whatever experimental agents. We don't need to know that information to decide when to induce you. We've always been able to induce you with 7 plus 3 for a long time. That's the standard of care arm of the study. We need to compare that against your experimental arm, which should pay the penalty of the delay. You want to take blood and look at things for 15 days and let people sit around. You need to pay the penalty for whatever that means in an intention to treat fashion. You don't just reap the reward in the people in whom you're able to get to therapy. You have to pay the penalty for people who don't make it. So you need a randomized trial to really see that. Um, that's what we need to do. In the arm, you compare one arm, best treatment now, as we always did. Other arm, delay care to screen for therapy and get said therapy if you're a match versus not. The correct question to ask is, is it better to screen patients with whatever novel test and assign therapy or not to do what we're currently doing? It's not the right question to ask among those who screen positive, should they get the novel drug or the old drug? That's not the right question. So what's the bottom line here? It's just a great example of an observational study that just so happens it's done poorly and it reaches a conclusion that pushes a preconceived talking point, an agenda that people really, really want to believe. And so it will be cited and believed. It will be uncritically accepted by people who don't understand that they are conditioning on the receipt of therapy. And by doing so, they're excluding some patients. And those patients in, that they're excluding might have had outcomes so bad, it would have dragged down the outcomes for all of the people in whom that strategy was deployed at the outset, the strategy that it would be okay to wait. Um, the people for whom the doctors are comfortable waiting are probably not like the people for whom the doctors feel like you got to treat this patient within three days. So this really is not really a study that's great to be asked in this ret retrospective fashion. If you really thought long and hard about it, you might be able to try to think of a way to get around this in a retrospective study, but mm, you might not be able to. And if you're not able to get around it, you might have to do the right study, which is probably a prospective randomized study. Um, I'll have to think more about that. Um, but I guess what I want to say is that, I mean, to me, it's a great example of you know, you get a lot of clinicians who don't do a lot of these kinds of analyses, um, doing this analysis, maybe with a blind spot that they don't see this as a problem. Um, that might all be excusable if it weren't for the fact that there is a huge for-profit commercial motivation to reach this result, that the authors have a laundry list of financial conflicts of interest with companies that would benefit from this particular result. Uh, that this is a classic error that people have made for many, many years and nothing stopped them with all their wealth and resources from getting somebody with a bit of epidemiology background to point out that this is kind of a big concern here, particularly with the way in which treatment decisions are made in the real world. Um, when you get all that together, I mean, it's hard not for someone like me to be a bit cynical, um, to feel as if 
this is not really science done for the sake of learning because the analysis plan is really incapable of answering the question that that really that they want to ask, which is, is it is it okay for us to run these studies where we sit around for 15 days? That's really what they want to ask. Um, this analysis doesn't really answer that question, um, but it gives an answer that may make one feel comfortable doing that, and that just so happens to be an answer that many, many people are going to be very happy to read. Um, so that's why I get cynical and annoyed, and especially when I see this as a top 10. And I think it really goes to the fact that, you know, there are many people who may be disease-specific experts who know a lot about AML, um, and they may have good questions, which is like, is it okay to sit around and wait for 15 days while we're doing this new thing? That's like a fair question because there are a lot of people who want to do that. Um, but you really need to involve people who understand whether or not the methods of your study are actually answering the question if you really care about what patients' best interests are. And the truth is, I mean, I don't know the answer to the question. I mean, I've given you some reasons to doubt it in my discussion here, to doubt that this is a true finding and that maybe the delay is actually pejorative, that it has a bad outcome. It's actually associated with a bad causal of a bad outcome that's like not good to delay. But I don't know that to be the case. The way to know that to be the case is to do the right study. That right study is a bit costly, but it pales in comparison to the price of any of these drugs once they're marketed. And all of these drugs seek this market share. AML like many other cancers, is a cancer for which we need more randomized trials. We don't need uncontrolled studies. We don't need to compare CR rates from apples versus oranges here. That's a foolish enterprise. It's fraught with problems. It's not going to actually push um, treatment forward. It's going to make a lot of people feel good and let a lot of people make money, but it's not going to help our patients. And so we don't need that. We don't need, uh, I think, fundamentally flawed retrospective analyses. Um, we need just simple randomized studies. One arm, we're going to treat people the way we've always done, which is right away. The other arm, you can do whatever you want. And if you want to sit around for 15 days while you wait for whatever test, so be it. But you're going to have to pay the penalty of all the people who don't do well and hope that the people who make it to 15 days do so magnificently well that they pull your survival curve up and you actually get an improved outcome over the standard of care before we'll change our standard of care. That's the simple way to answer this question. Um, and you don't see that here. And so I'm surprised it's in anyone's top 10. It would be in my top 10 fundamental epidemiology uh, errors, um, but it's certainly not practice changing. It certainly should um, give no real assurance that, um, that what we're doing is safe. And on that positive note, we'll turn to Sherry Aspinall, who's done a magnificent in-depth project with real-world data. And unlike uh, the present study of real-world data, um, Dr. Aspinall uh, does it right. Um, and she is uh, more circumspect and modest in the conclusions she reaches, and she reaches findings that are uh, arguably justifiable based on retrospective real-world data, rather um, than findings uh, that are uh, almost surely due to be an artifact of the inclusion strategy of the patients of the study. So on that positive note, here's Dr. Aspinall. I'm back in plenary session, joined remotely by Sherry Aspinall. Dr. Aspinall is a pharmacist by training who does research on medication safety and is currently part of the VA Pharmacy Benefits Management Services based out of Hines, Illinois, as well as the Center for Medication Safety and Center for Health Equity Research and Promotion. Dr. Aspinall is a pharmacist by training who does cutting-edge research on medication safety, utilization, and outcomes in the real world. And she's on the podcast today to discuss a new paper that came out in Cancer entitled Use of Targeted Therapies for Advanced Renal Cell Carcinoma in the Veterans Health Administration. Dr. Aspinall, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Vinay, for inviting me to, um, to join you on this podcast. I hope it's going to be a good one. I hope the listeners are going to like it. Um, and I guess I should also disclose that uh, I, uh, I worked with you. I helped out uh, in a very modest way on this paper, and I was honored to do so. And it was a learning experience for me as well. So Yes, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Um, so let, let, let's jump right in here. Um, why don't I start by asking you, you know, what was the question that you kind of tackled? And, and then I want to spend some time talking about how you actually went about collecting this data, assimilating it, and, 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 and gathering it uh, before we talk about what you found and, and how to make sense of it. So, you know, why don't, why don't I just let you start by saying, you know, what did you set out to do in this paper um, looking at these targeted therapies in RCC? 
Right, right. So at the time of this study, there were multiple tyrosine kinase inhibitors available. There were a couple of mTOR inhibitors and I think just one immune checkpoint inhibitor Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, And these medications were seen as a big improvement over previous therapy in RCC, uh, namely bevacizumab plus interferon alpha or interleukin-2. And I think the main reason that these were seen as a big improvement was because of the side effects of these previous medication. Mm-hmm. Um, however, these newer drugs that I mentioned do have a lot of serious adverse events. And so the feeling was among the oncologist is that perhaps these medications weren't as well tolerated in veterans as had been seen in clinical trials, knowing that the the veteran population is predominantly an elderly male population, there's a high burden of comorbidities, and generally just aren't as healthy as those patients that you would see in a clinical trial. And so the questions were really you know, given all of these medications that are available, how are they currently being used in veterans in the VA? And then how how are these meds being tolerated? In other words, how long are they actually staying on the medications? And then what is the effect on overall survival? Mm-hmm. So that, that was really the background or the thinking going into this study. And um, with regard to how we, uh, the methods that we used or how we collected the data, it was really, um, I really have to thank the pharmacists who participated in this study because they collected the bulk of the data that we used. So in this retrospective cohort study, and again, it was patients who were diagnosed with advanced clear cell RCC and this was back in fiscal years 2010 through 2014, Mm -hmm. and they were treated at one of 24 VHA medical centers across the country. Mm -hmm. And then they were followed through the end of September 2016. Mm -hmm. So it it was a convenient sample in that I proposed the study to pharmacists across the country and within the VA, Mm -hmm. and pharmacists from 24 sites volunteer to participate. Mm-hmm. So then they collected the data on all of their patients at their site in that time period who were diagnosed with advanced clear cell renal cell carcinoma. Um, and the reason that we chose to use this method of data collection versus you know all the databases that we have access to within yeah. BHA is that when you're looking at the outpatient use of drugs to treat cancer, you can see what the pharmacy dispensed, you know, so you would have the directions, you would know the medication, you would know the dose, but you know what the patient actually took. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, we wanted to know, you know, if the patients were taking a lower dose, if they discontinued the medication early, and knowing it, that these patients are, are followed closely by oncology, and if they were having a problem, they would be in touch with someone, mm-hmm. and that information would appear in their electronic medical record, we thought that that was the best way to capture what the patients actually took. That is well put. And so I guess there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk a little bit more about there. Um, one is, um, I think, the, 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 the impetus for the question, which I think you put so nicely, which is that, um, you know, the VA, as many studies have shown, does a superb job of caring for veterans who, as you note, often may have comorbidities that are slightly different um, than uh, the average medical population and certainly different than the people who participate in clinical trials. And they may also right. be coming from different socioeconomic uh, strati uh, than people on clinical trials. And I guess I would say that 
if you were running a VA and you wanted to make judicious decisions about what medications truly offer value and benefit to your patient population, um, and you only had the clinical trials to look at, uh, that's a very difficult thing to do. Because frankly, the clinical trials are not telling you what you need to know, which is how do these medicines work in people who may be older and frailer uh, than the participants of clinical trials who I've heard some oncologists call Olympians with cancer um, because they're often 10 years younger than average cancer patients and they often have no comorbidities at all. Um, and, and, and some of them are extremely physically fit. And, and the reason this is so important is because, you know, a medication that causes a real side effect um, in somebody who is young and... And, and, and has no comorbidities, um, may have a severe side effect in someone who's older and frailer. And so knowing how these medicines work in, you know, quote unquote, the real world is very important. Um, right. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, it's not just the VA, of course, studies that come out of Kaiser kind of prove that as well, that Kaiser patients don't look like clinical trial patients. And, and I guess if I were to actually cast the stone here, I would say the blame goes for the regulators that let drugs onto the U.S. market with studies that do not inform the U.S. market, which is people in the United States. And I think that that's the place that we need to intervene. And we need to say, you know, if you're bringing drugs to the U.S. market to be sold for everyone in the United States, you need to have data that they work for everybody in the United States, be it veterans or patients at Kaiser or elderly people who often suffer the most from cancer. Of course, cancer is a disease of the elderly. So I guess I want to commend you at the outset that I think the question is very important. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about the methods. I guess one of the things that what I'm hearing from you is that it is important to get a human being who is knowledgeable, a pharmacist, to look through the electronic medical record, to take uh, administrative data and turn that into data that is really more faithful and honest. Um, and, and the reason I think that's so important to hear is that uh, we live at a time where a number of people believe that simply looking at administrative data or EMR data um, or pharmacy dispensing data will tell you something about how medicines are used. But what you're doing in your study is you're using um, some a human being who is knowledgeable, going through notes, um, reading about patients, looking at all different sources of information to figure out what dose someone's actually taking, whether or not they're actually taking the drug and what side effects they're actually having. And I guess I want to ask you, um, in doing that, did people come to you and say, look, um, there are some examples where what we find when we do a deep dive in a chart is very different than what you would have thought had you just looked at the administrative data? Oh, oh, definitely. And this crosses, you know, multiple drugs, not just those used in the treatment of cancer, mm -hmm. um, as you alluded to. Have you ever encountered a chart where if you had just trusted the administrative data, you would have said this patient is taking 50 milligrams of sunitinib. Um, but when you actually do a deep dive, you find out the patient is taking 37 and a half milligrams every other day or, or they're not taking it at all. I mean, are there examples right. where uh, the administrative record and what actually is in the chart are just very different? Oh, Oh, definitely. There are uh, multiple examples, especially when you're talking about these drugs used for the treatment of cancer. So, you know, if we would have looked at the pharmacy data and what the pharmacy dispensed, you would think that, you know, the patient was took the entire prescription mm -hmm. at the dose that was dispensed. But when you look in the chart, you find out that a patient skipped a dose because they were having some side effect or they skipped a few doses because of the side effect and then they restarted at a lower dose or they stopped it all together and there was a break in therapy until they started the next medication. So you wouldn't capture any of that information if you were just using administrative data. And the same thing goes for adverse events because mm -hmm. The only way that we can pick up an adverse event using administrative data is by looking at, say, ICD-9 or 10 codes, um, E codes for adverse events, which are notoriously underutilized. So yes, if yes. you're going to use mm -hmm. those for ADEs, you're really not going to have any idea of the, the extent of the problem. So if you go that route, then you're really relying on the accuracy of those codes to pick up what you're looking for. And you're just 
you're going to miss so much and you may not be able to capture the side effects that are specific to the medication. You may be picking up something that was coded, you know, related to a disease state and not related to the medication at all. So um, that's another big advantage to the methods that we used is that we could know for sure, you know, what side effects the patients had that were documented in their medical record and that led to either a dose being held or a dose being reduced or the medication being discontinued altogether. That's so well put. And I guess um, the reason I think it's so important is is a couplefold. One, um, I think it, it's worth stating that what you have done is a Herculean task. I mean, you've gotten a, a bunch of pharmacists to go through the charts of hundreds and hundreds of veterans um, to glean this information, often clarifying what you might have thought through administrative records. Um, and, and, and that is uh, very commendable. And that's something that not a lot of studies have done. And then the next thing I think it, it really stresses is that we need to take with a grain of salt studies that don't do all these things, that may conclude a drug has very low real-world AEs because they didn't look through all the charts, um, that may conclude it's very tolerable because they didn't look to see whether or not patients were actually taking um, the, the dispensed dose. Um, so we need to take those with a grain of salt. And then the third thing I think about is I imagine you know, what might the gold standard be? Something that, you know, we weren't able to do, but that maybe theoretically one could do. And that might be, you know, you can imagine a world where um, you, you, you send somebody to someone's house and interview them for an hour a day, you know, for the next 1,000 patients taking these drugs, right? You know, very costly study. Um, but there you right. might find there's even more side effects that the patient didn't remember to tell the doctor. And, you know, so one can yeah. imagine, you know, there are all these layers of how, how deep you're going to dig. Um, and I guess I want to commend you for how deep you have dug, which I think is the deepest anyone can dig with the information that's available. And I think, and I think it does matter. Um, and you were going to say something about this? Yeah, I, I just want to say thank you. And again, thanks to all the pharmacists that uh, agreed to be a part of this study, um, because it does require a lot of effort. And and you're right, even with going in the chart and collecting data there in terms of the ADEs that patients experienced, uh, we do know that when prompted specifically about problems that patients may be having with medications, they're going to give you even more information. Yes. So what we found is still probably you know, underestimating the extent of the problems that the veterans had with the medications. Yes. And uh, and I guess just another side note is that, you know, we live at a time where there are a number of parties that are advocating for the U.S. FDA to use, quote unquote, real world data for drug approvals. And I think that, you know, I'm I think that not every group that will look at real world data seeking drug approvals will be as meticulous as your group. And there may be groups that look at, you know, very cursory first glance, what does the administrative data say? And those groups may overestimate tolerability and underestimate adverse events, um, and that will lead to false inferences. And and to correct that problem, you have to put a lot of work into it. You have to get the, the labor of many people to look through charts. And at some point, the amount of work you've put into it and labor you've put into it might even be more costly than just running a clinical trial at the outset. But anyway, that's my soapbox. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's just, a, you know, I think that's further reason why I think we need to be more cautious about that strategy. Um, but anyway, so I'll come back to your paper, um, unless you want to comment on that. No, the only thing I was going to say, I mean, you really are getting to the issue of, you know, one of the issues is efficacy studies versus effectiveness. Yes, so, yes. You know, what you see in a clinical trial, that's sort of the ideal situation, but it's not how the medications are going to be used once they, you know, once they are on the market. Yes, and I would love to see like an effectiveness clinical trial, like a clinical trial where we say we have a new drug for kidney cancer. And what we're going to do is we're going to randomly assign the next 200 veterans with kidney cancer who come in uh, to this drug. And we're going to put no exclusions on age or, or uh, ejection fraction or anything like that. We're just going to randomize the next 200 people that come in because you know what? Once the drug is approved, that's how people are going to use it. I would love to see pragmatic randomized trials answer these questions. But, you know, there's a little appetite for that because, of course... Um, it's very likely that some of these medications will not show any benefit at all and they won't be approved. Um, so, but back to your paper. Okay, so you have 
assembled a group of excellent pharmacists. You have meticulously combed through hundreds and hundreds of charts to identify um, patients with uh, de novo stage four or recurrent metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Um, and then the first thing you're looking, and you have certain fiscal years you're looking at. So the first thing you're able to talk about is what are the practice patterns? What are the drugs people getting? Um, but you're also able to look at what are the rates of AEs? What are the rates of dose reductions, um, uh, dose interruptions? Um, and, and I was wondering, you know, anywhere you want to jump in, what do you think some of the important findings you found are? What do you think some of the important takeaway, takeaway messages you found are? Well, I think, you know, we looked at all patients with the diagnosis. So, of course, not everyone was treated. And so mm. I, I think the first point is of our cohort of patients, about 23% did not receive any medication mm-hmm. for their RCC. And so... We did ask the pharmacist to document reasons why mm-hmm. patients weren't treated, if, if that was in the chart. And the main reasons were uh, factors such as poor performance status, the extent of the patient's disease, the number of comorbidities the patient had, and in some case, cases, the patients refused. So I, I think that speaks to the underlying, you know, health of the veteran population that is being considered for these therapies that, you know, a a fairly significant percentage don't even get started on medications for their advanced RCC. That's an excellent point. Uh, And I think just to echo that, um, there are a number of studies from many countries around the world uh, in many tumor types that come to a similar conclusion. I'm thinking of a paper by Adrian Satcher and colleagues from Ontario about lung cancer, that there is a sizable group of people in the real world in whom no therapy is ever deployed. And often for the exact reasons uh, that you cite, which are that people are coming in very, very sick and they have other problems and doctors are scared uh, that these medicines will kill somebody rather than help them. And, and that's, not a, that's not an unsubstantiated fear. That's a fear born out of experience and a real fear. Um, and so there's a reluctance to, to treat uh, you know, somebody with an ECOG of, of three or, or even four. Um, and the next thing, oh, the therapeutic nihilism. I guess I'd say that uh, I'm, I'm often very sympathetic to that kind of point of view because um, I can sympathize and empathize with somebody who's told, you know, you have an incurable cancer. Answer, and we're going to give you a pill that has these side effects. And um, it, it, it may let you live a, a couple of months longer at best, um, and, but it's unlikely to cure your cancer and your cancer will progress unrelentingly uh, with or without the pill. Uh, do you want to take the pill? And I think it's reasonable for people to say, you know, that's not that's not worth it to me to be on this medication for that marginal benefit. And I think that might also tell you um, something about the values and preferences of people in the real world, that they may not be the same as the people who pursue clinical trials. So I think that's such an important finding um, to to know. Um, And the way in which you're documenting it is in a very robust way. Um, This isn't because the administrative data missed something. This is because when you do a deep dive on these patients, you really find that they were never treated. Right, right. Exactly. And we did look at the characteristics of the patients who were treated mm-hmm. and those who weren't treated. And all of the baseline characteristics were similar except for their ECOG performance status, mm-hmm. which, you know, we would have expected and, and really goes along with the reasons that we found documented in the chart. Mm-hmm. And uh, a greater percentage of the patients who were actually treated had we're in the ECOG categories of zero, one, and two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a higher percentage that weren't treated were in the three and four. I see. Right, which is it goes hand in hand with what with what um, the, the stated reasons are. Um, what what right. other findings that uh, that jump out at you? Well, I, I think among the patients who were treated, in terms of the medications that were used um, at the time of the study, were really in line with you know, what you would find in the literature Mm -hmm. in that therapies most frequently used first line were sunitinib, pizopinib, and temsorolimus. Mm -hmm. And um, interestingly, what we found is that the mean number of medications received was Mm 1.9. So a median of only two medications that patients received um, over the the entire course of therapy for 
their RCC. Mm -hmm. um, another interesting thing is, you know, we looked at, you know, we recorded all lines of therapy that a patient received or all medications that a patient received. So, you know, we started out, everybody received at least a, a first medication or an initial medication, and then only about half of those went on to receive a second targeted therapy. Mm -hmm. And so around 50%, and then only half of those, again, so about 25% received a third drug, and then only 10% went on to receive a fourth drug. Mm -hmm. And we really only had a handful of patients that received uh, five or six lines of therapy, which was the, uh, I believe, the maximum number of medications that were used. Mm -hmm. Uh, those are all important findings. So I guess what you're saying is that uh, patients in the VA um, who get care are getting the best care. They're getting care in line with the uh, state-of-the-art New England Journal papers that came out the year before. I mean, they're getting the, the, the same drugs that you would give in these settings, which is sunitipazopinib and temsorolimus for people with uh, uh, poor performance status. Um, uh, and, and what you're also saying is that uh, in the real world, uh, this disease um, uh, is an aggressive disease. It can be uh, only one, uh, one and a half, two lines of therapy um, before the disease uh, takes its natural course. Um, and of course, there is that subset of patients with, you know, indolent biology in whom they are able to receive six medications. But in those cases, I sincerely doubt that it was the medications that did the heavy lifting, but rather that the cancer itself was one of the naturally slow-growing variants of renal cell carcinoma, which do occur. Um, right. So those are all fascinating findings. Um, now I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the adverse events and the dose reductions. Um, yeah, what, what, did you, what did you find there? Yeah, and um, I guess before I get oh, no, go to yeah. the first of events, uh, just a little bit regarding the duration of therapy. Yes. I mentioned the number of medications, but, you know, we were very curious about the duration of therapy and how that looked in, you know, a real-world setting versus a clinical trial. And so when we looked at the total duration of therapy, you know, regardless of the, the number of medications received, it was around 5.2 months. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, by placing therapy, the duration was similar. So, in other words, the first medication used, the median duration was about 86 days. Mm -hmm. The medication was about 75 days. The third was about 88 days. And we didn't really see a drop-off in, in terms of duration of therapy until you got to you know, that fourth medication. Um, we also did look at the duration of therapy uh, by individual medication. And for those that were most commonly used, so pizopinib had the, actually had the longest median duration of 130 days. And Ivolumab had the shortest at uh, 49 days. Mm. I, yeah, no, I think that's so interesting. And I just want to contrast that that 86 days median duration of initial therapy that you observed in the VA system uh, among people being treated, uh, which is just right. under three months, contrasts against uh, the eight-month median duration of treatment in the GSK-sponsored study of Pazopinib Versutin in the New England Journal paper. And what that tells me is that people in the real world getting the active medication um, take it for less than half the amount of time as people in the clinical trials. And the conclusion I come to is that the people in the clinical trials are that dissimilar from people in the real world that they are able to tolerate the medication for two times as long and then some. Um, it speaks to how disconnected our clinical trials are from average Americans um, is, is the conclusion I come to. But I think um, no matter what conclusion one comes to, it's just a very notable finding. Right. And, and if you specifically look at, you know, pizopinib, so you could compare it with that eight months in yes. the trial yeah. that you mentioned, it was about four and a half months in our study mm -hmm. for pizopinib and about three months for sunitinib. Mm -hmm. so, so as you said, you know, less than half for sunitinib and, you know, about half for pizopinib. Mm -hmm. 
And I guess the other maybe take-home lesson is for physicians is, um, well, we'll come to this, but I guess what I was going to say was um, maybe when you initially prescribe these medications, you should prescribe them on a two-week period or a one-week period so that you're not wasting all this medication um, in people who discontinue very early on, uh, um, you know, so that you, 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 it's maybe a more cost-conscious way to prescribe the drug. Um, right. No, I agree. And I know we asked that question when we were doing this study, just in, in talking with the pharmacist who participated. And I don't recall what, you know, percentage said that they had something like that in place. But a number of the pharmacists who participated in the study actually worked with the oncologists at their VA. And they said that they did dispense a shorter uh, day supply of the medication, and then the pharmacist would follow up with the patient after a week just to see how he was doing, and then additional medication would be dispensed to the patient um, if he was tolerating the medication well. Mm -hmm. That is a, a sensible way to do it. Um, okay, so uh, any, any other efficacy findings before you want to jump in on the tolerability? Uh, so, with regard to altering therapy or discontinuing therapy, we found that about 62% of patients had one or more doses of at least one of the medications that they received held or reduced. And those percentages ranged anywhere from, it was actually a low of 31% for Everolimus and up to almost 55% for tensorolimus. So, and then the TKIs were in between there anywhere from 37% up to around 50%. And we did get the reason why the dose held or the uh, dose was reduced. And overwhelmingly, the reason was because of an adverse drug event. So about in 84%, of the the, re, the cases were due to an ADE as to why the dose was held or reduced. Mm -hmm. And then we also looked at therapy actually being discontinued. And as you would expect, disease progression was the most common reason. So that was about 59% of the time patients discontinued as they had disease progression. Mm -hmm. But that was fairly closely followed by an adverse drug event. That was about 45% of the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a pretty high when you look at percentage discontinuation versus what you might see in a clinical trial. Um, I'm trying to think in, in the pazopinib versus sunitinib trial that you mentioned, yeah. I, I believe that about 20% of the, the patients in the sunitinib group discontinued the drug due to an ADE, mm -hmm. and I think it was around 25% for those who were on uh, pazopinib. So, this, yeah. um, you know, different, different than, than what we saw. Yes, very different, um, but not different than my clinical experience, because my clinical experience mirrors what you found, um, and and not just my clinical experience, but also reading papers that have come out of Italy and and uh, and other nations in Europe over over this time, particularly with these um, um, sort of dirty tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, it's a consistent finding, which is that. Um, uh, these medicines can be difficult to tolerate. And I kind of cringe sometimes when I hear people say, um, we're not going to give you a, an old-fashioned chemotherapy drug. We're going to give you a targeted drug, uh, which is sort of a narrative that patients hear a lot. And if I heard that right. as a patient, I would think that means, oh, great, I'm not going to be very sick. I'm not going to lose my hair. I'm going to take a targeted drug, which means it's not going to have a lot of side effects because that's got to be what targeted means. But it doesn't mean any of those things because a cytotoxic drug administered every three weeks might have a certain rate of grade three 
uh, two to three and four AEs. But those AEs will clear up and you'll have two weeks of drug holiday. But a daily TKI taken for the rest of your life, even grade one and grade two AEs can become so intolerable. And even though they're targeted, these drugs have real side effects that can really lead to discontinuation and, and interruption, which are sort of true metrics of whether or not they are better. And I think by these metrics, I guess I would say, I'm not convinced that dirty TKIs are any better than cytotoxic drugs. I'm not convinced we should even tell people they're targeted because that leads to sort of a misleading mental construct about these drugs. And what you find are rates of dose reduction and discontinuation are very, very high in the real world setting where people are older and have real comorbidities. Um, and that is incredibly important and I think concerning for sort of a broader narrative about cancer. Right. And you mentioned traditional chemotherapy. Some of the adverse drug events that we saw are the same as what you would see with traditional chemotherapy. Right. Right. For patients that had, you know, thrombocytopenia, had anemia, you know, as reasons that their their medication was discontinued or they had the hand-foot uh, skin reaction yes. or renal failure or hepatotoxicity. So these are all very serious adverse reactions and similar to ones that you could see with what we think of as traditional chemotherapy. Yes. And that's, that is important to know, too, which is some of the drugs that I've heard labeled that chemotherapy-free, um, they may not have a cytotoxic drug in it, but they have all the side effects of a chemotherapy. Um, and so I'm not sure what exactly is so free about it. Now I wonder if you want to talk about what you found in terms of um, overall survival, knowing, and I think we'll put this out there at the beginning, knowing that um, drug-to-drug um, comparisons uh, for this sort of study might be fraught because, of course, people are not randomly assigned to therapies. And, of course, people getting temsorolimus are going to be sicker than people getting sunitinib, et cetera. Um, so sort of those kinds of comparisons may um, be fraught and, and not suited. But you are able to say something about the natural history. What happens to people who take these medications? What are their survival like? So I wonder if you want to jump in there. Yeah. So we looked at median overall survival from their date of diagnosis and also then from time that they started treatment. And the reason that we looked at it from both starting points is that when you look at some other observational studies, um, it's not always clear what they used as the starting point when they were looking at overall survival. Yes. Um, it's it's best to look at the time when therapy has started because if not, you have a survival bias because the patients had to be alive to get the um, therapy. from the time of diagnosis yeah. to when they started therapy in order to get therapy. So um, we looked at both just to be able to, to quantify that time period between diagnosis and the, the start of therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's so, the so-called guarantee time or immortal time is that some um, therapies. Right. Like, yeah, right. That's a great point. This is a, yeah, the, I mean, the greatest challenge of some of these retrospective studies is time zero. So you're doing, you're, you're at least among people who get treated, um, you know, the time from the moment of treatment to death. And so that's sort of something that you can look at. Yeah. Right. And so we found that if we looked at from the the time of diagnosis and looked at overall survival, it was about 1.3 years. If we looked at starting point as time therapy began, then median overall survival was approximately one year. Mm -hmm. So not a, a huge difference with most patients, you know, starting therapy fairly soon after they were diagnosed. But when you look at, you know, that median overall survival time of just a year, yes. um, that's, that's a lot different than what you see in the clinical trials, although it is consistent with some of the other observational studies that have been published. Yeah. Um, I think we're probably maybe a little bit shorter than some of the observational studies, but also right in line with what's been seen in other studies. And so if, if you look at the two most common medications that were used in the study, uh, with pazopinib, the median overall survival was about 15 months, and with sunitinib, it was 12 months. 
I'm just trying to compare what we found then with the, the uh, trial. clinical yeah, so and the trial, it's a, it's a monster letter to the editor of New England Journal called Overall Survival, long-term follow-up of that study. I think it was 30 months plus. Let me find it. Motzer, N-E-J-M. It came out a couple of years later, and it was just a letter. Right. Yeah, here it is. Overall Survival and Pazapanib versus Sunitinib. And then they say the median was 28.3 months in Pazapanib and 29.1 months in Sunitinib. So you're looking right. at 12 and 15 versus 28 and 29 months. Yes, yes. Yes. So I guess here's, I mean, this is the way I would kind of, this is something I think about when I read your paper. There is one narrative out there right now, and this is the popular narrative. And the narrative is that we have had tremendous progress in kidney cancer. Why? Because we are diagnosing more and more people in 2019 at an earlier stage of disease, and we're resecting the tumor entirely. And so this is beyond the scope of your paper. Um, two, we have, um, you know eight, nine, probably even more drugs for kidney cancer that are now FDA-approved options. And these drugs are increasing the overall survival in randomized control trials, where median overall survival in frontline studies is getting longer than it was a decade ago. And these drugs are targeted therapies. They're not your, your grandfather's uh, cytotoxic drug. So I think one narrative is that we've had so much progress in kidney cancer. We are curing so many people. We are improving survival with new drugs. Um, yes, these drugs are expensive, but that's the price of innovation. You know, that's, so this is the popular narrative. Okay. Right. I want to contrast that with a different narrative. And, and part of this is based on, I think, a recent paper by Gil Welch that came out in uh, AFP, uh, American Family Physician, um, where Gil Welch has plotted the incidence of kidney cancer over time from 75 to 2015, the mortality of kidney cancer over time, um, and the metastatic incidence of kidney cancer over time per 100,000 people. And what he finds is that the incidence has uh, effectively uh, doubled over time. It's just more and more people are found with kidney cancer. Um, and that's probably because we put a lot of people in CAT scanners these days. And if you put people in CAT scanners and you put them in more and more, you're going to find more kidney cancers. You're going to be able to cut those out. But what has happened to mortality and metastatic incidence? Well, metastatic incidence has been a flat line suggesting that the cancers you're cutting out of people are probably not the cancers that we're going to metastasize. And mortality per 100,000 people has changed not one bit. It's a flat line over time. It's just really stone cold flat, uh, despite all the new TKIs, uh, despite all these drugs. Um, and, and now I want to combine that with your paper, which is your paper saying that um, these drugs uh, are not given to everybody. There's a fraction of people who are too sick to get the drugs. Um, when you give the drugs to people, they don't do the same as they do in clinical trials. They have more side effects. They dose reduce. They dose discontinue. Um, and their median survival is not as long as in clinical trials. And, and I think when I put those two things together, I think the real narrative of kidney cancer is that we um, feel as if we're doing better, but we're not doing that much better. We feel as if we're doing better because more people come to our clinic cured, but that's only because we are scanning so many people, we're finding disease that never needed to be found and we're cutting it out. So our, of 100 people that come in our clinic, the overdiagnosed fraction is diluting the people who are really sick. And so our impression of the disease is psychologically changing, even though we're not really lowering the mortality that way. And then the drugs we're giving patients, which we think we're doing a great deal of good, they're not as tolerable as we think. They're not able to be taken as long as we hope. They're not improving overall survival the way we would wish. And that's why mortality is just a flat line. And, and meanwhile, we are taking money from society, um, from public payers, from patients, and we're consolidating that money in the hands of uh, shareholders of the companies that make these products um, and the people who sell uh, CAT scanners and profit from uh, you know, the bonanza of, of early stage disease. And so uh, this is a very cynical view of looking at it, which is we have you know, so many drugs for kidney cancer. They are so hyped, um, but they are not doing what we think they're doing. Um, and we're deceiving ourselves into thinking the glass is half full um, when the glass is, is really um, mostly empty. And I don't know, I, I, so this is just uh, food for thought. I don't know what you think about this kind of interpretation of the world. Right, and, and I think when I look at the literature and look at these clinical trials for any medication, but especially when looking at those that are involved in the treatment of cancer, you know, I look at 
even in the clinical trial, you know, what what is the absolute difference between mm-hmm. the two groups that yeah. they are comparing? And mm-hmm. also, what was the outcome? You know, are we looking at a hard outcome? You know, is it overall survival or is it some other, you know, intermediate mm-hmm. endpoint? Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the absolute difference between the two groups that they are comparing, let's say if it's a new medication versus uh, one that's already on the market, you know, a lot of times the, the difference that you find between the two medications in terms of overall survival or even disease-free progression might be, you know, a matter of, you know, days or a couple of months. And so I think you have to, to then, you know, that was the difference in a clinical trial setting. What difference then would you see in the real world mm-hmm. when you have to then consider how well the medication is going to be tolerated and, you know, think about, you know, what is the evidence that would link duration of therapy with survival. So, you know, for some of the medications, you know, dose intensity, which includes both dose and duration of therapy, are linked with overall survival. So, you know, if you can't take the dose that was used in the clinical trial, if you can't take it for as long as was studied in the clinical trial, if you're going to have more adverse events, then, you know, how is that impacting the outcome that was, you know, studied in the trial and, of course, that you're looking for in your patients? That is so well put. You're right. So many of these drugs were approved based on surrogate endpoints. They have modest differences in the surrogate. They have weak correlation with overall survival. Um, And when you factor those in with the fact that the real world population is older and frailer um, and the discontinuation is higher, what is the benefit you're getting? I think that's just so well put. Um, I I wanted to give you the last word on this paper. Uh, any, Any thoughts about you know, what you found or the process by which you did it, uh, anything you think the listeners, um, you know, should know that we didn't cover? My final thought would be that based on our findings, I think this really points to the importance of communication between physicians and patients when they are considering these medications for the, the treatment of RCC that patients are fully informed about the side effects of these medications and what to expect in terms of the impact on their quality of life as well as potential impact on their overall survival. Because as you said, these medications would be continued until the patient either doesn't tolerate the medication or they have disease progression. So it's important that that communication occurs and the patient understands the impact, both positive and negative, on the, the cancer that they have and their quality of life. That is uh, a very important thing, that at the end of the day, all this research uh, should lead to sort of better informed consent discussions with patients about what these drugs really do and what they really, what they really offer. Um, Sherry Aspinall, I want to thank you so much for leading this paper, um, for bringing it from you know just a germ of an idea to a full publication. Uh, thank you and your team of uh, Herculean pharmacists for putting all this data together. Um, and I think it's it's just such an important contribution to the cancer discussion now, uh, which is that what do these drugs really do and and at what price uh, and what toxicity? And so I think it's it's so important what you did um, and you did it marvelously. And I think it's 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 often not clear to readers when they look at a retrospective study um, which ones are the really high quality ones and which ones are the ones that were done very quickly and took shortcuts. And I think it's clear from our discussion that this is a very high quality study. There were no shortcuts taken. This is a study that required human beings investing a lot of time um, to make sense of information. And I think that is really what you need to do when you want to do these kind of studies right. And so I want to commend you for leading this project um, and bringing it to fruition. And I think it's a wonderful paper that I encourage everybody to read, Use of Targeted Therapies for Advanced Renal Cell Carcinoma in the Veterans Health Administration. It's on cancer medicine. Um, And we've been speaking with Sherry Aspinall. Uh, So thank you so much, Sherry, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me and for helping to get the word out about this important study that we did. Thank you. It's my pleasure. 
You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>